Apostle Paul was a sports fan. Did you know that? He was a sports fan. If you read his letters in the Bible, he often employs imagery from the athletic realm, from the sports world. It's just really clear that the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. Now, uh, guys, football season's about to start, and if you find yourself on a Saturday and you're on game number three and your wife walks in the room wondering why you're watching so much football, you can say, I'm just being biblical. I'm, I'm just being biblical. The Apostle Paul was a sports fan. And in our text this morning, he uses the idea of a race to communicate to the Christians in Galatia how they ought to be moving forward in their Christian life. So keeping that in mind, I want you to look with me in Galatians chapter 5. We are continuing our study through this wonderful New Testament letter that Paul wrote to churches scattered throughout the first century province of Galatia. Galatians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 7. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. Paul writes, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for yet another opportunity to gather as a faith family, to sing praises to your matchless name. Lord, to be in your presence And Lord, to come to this moment where we open our Bibles with bowed hearts and expectant hearts. Lord, expecting you to speak to us by your word, applied to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, would you move? Would you draw near? Would you bless? Would you encourage? Would you challenge Would you transform, would you do that today in our midst as we lift up the mighty name of Jesus? For it's in his name that we pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The Christian life is a race. That's the point Paul makes when he says in verse 7, you are running well. You were moving forward in your Christian life, but now because of false teaching, you are not moving forward. This is not the only place in the Bible that the imagery of a race is used to communicate something about the Christian life. Over in 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul speaks of running a race in such a way that he, he's not disqualified by living in self-control, so he will gain the prize when he completes his race. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the Bible says, Let us lay, inside, lay aside the sin which so easily entangles and every encumbrance or weight, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. So the Bible uses a race as a metaphor for the Christian life. I mean, think about it. Just like a race, the Christian life has a beginning. The Christian life, your Christian race, begins at the moment you meet Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The moment you're born again, the moment you're saved, the moment you're redeemed. For me, that happened when I was nine years of age. That's when my race began. And when you were born again, that's when your race begins. So just like a race, the Christian life has a beginning. And just like a race, the Christian life has an end. The Bible teaches that either we will die and go to heaven or Jesus will come back for us before we die. But one way or the other, if we know Christ, our journey, our Christian life on this earth will come to an end. There is a finish line that we are moving toward. And just like a race, there's a prize. If you run a race and win a race, you get a prize for that race. And the Bible speaks of, of the imperishable wreath we gain when we finish our race, the, the crown of life, eternal life as our prize when we enter into the joy of our master. But here's the deal. When I finish my race, whenever that is, when I receive that imperishable wreath of eternal life, I want to hear my master say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear my master say that I have run my race well. And don't you want to hear that from Jesus when you get to the finish line? When you step into glory, don't you want to hear the King of Kings? Acknowledge that you've run your race well. Well, that's what our text is about this morning. Running your race well. Moving forward in your Christian life. So I want to give you three truths about how you and I can run our race well. Number one, if we're going to run our race well, we need to run away from false teachers. We need to run away from false teachers. Now, just a reminder of the overall context of this letter. Paul had gone into the Roman province of Galatia. He had preached the gospel. Folks who got saved, he gathered them, and churches were started. And after Paul started these churches and gave them some basic instruction about the church and the Christian life, he left that province and went back to his home base of the church in Antioch of Syria. And after Paul left, some false teachers began to infiltrate these churches. And they were saying something like this, based upon what we see in Galatians. We've heard that you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Hey, that's great, but if you really want to be right with God, if you want to make sure that God accepts you, then you also need to keep the Jewish law, particularly the 
uh, rite of circumcision. If you really want to make sure, God will accept you. So Paul got word of this. He's writing a letter to say, no, that's not right. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by your works, not by keeping of the law, not by your moral effort. You can't save yourself. Your only hope is for someone to save you. And the only one who can save you and forgive you based upon his finished work is Jesus Christ. So he's writing this letter to correct their thinking that had uh, that was under attack because of the false teachers that had come into this church. And so he's writing to say, who was it that that hindered you from moving forward in your Christian life. He says, who hindered you, verse 7, from obeying the truth? And so Paul wants to understand, if you're going to run your race well, you can't let false teachers and false teaching keep you from moving forward. So you need to run away from false teachers. This entails a few things. Number one, it entails identifying false teachers by knowing the truth. Identifying false teachers by knowing the truth. He says there in verse 7, Who was it who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So he's saying you need to recognize this teaching, this works-based teaching which has infiltrated the church is not of truth. They're actually hindering you from being in the truth. It's not from him who calls you. He's saying this teaching is not in accord with the Bible, with the Word of God with the apostolic body of truth that God had given to his apostles to, to preach there in the first century. It's, it's not in accord with the Christian faith. It, it doesn't line up. And so the point for you and for me is this. If we want to identify false teachers and teaching, the best way is to know the truth. Because if you know the truth well, when you see something false, you will, you will know it's false immediately. So you and I need to be in the truth, growing in the truth, growing in the Word, studying, deepening our roots so that we can see falsehood when it raises its ugly head. Now there's a place for classes that teach you about world religions and cults and false worldviews. It's, it's perhaps helpful to learn those things so you can be more effective at sharing the gospel. But I want you to understand. The best way to spot false, teach, uh, spot false teaching is not by taking a class about false teaching. The best way to spot false teaching is to be in the Word. To know what the Bible says. So if we're going to run away from false teachers, we need to know the truth. Secondly, we need to understand the danger of false teaching. Look what he says in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he transitions from the athletic world to the culinary world. And he, and he mentions here that if you put just a little bit of leaven in a, a lump of dough, it begins to spread throughout the entire lump of dough. And he's saying that's what false teaching is like. Paul's saying this is not just some philosophical, doctrinal discussion that's interesting to have. He's saying this teaching that's infiltrated the churches in Galatia is wrong. It's, it's not true. And if you allow it to take root in your church, it will spread and disrupt what God is doing in your churches. So we need to understand that false teaching is very, very serious. It's a big deal. Look what he says about false teachers in that next verse. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view 
In other words, you won't buy into the false teaching. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever that is. His point, false teachers are in the hands of the living God. And there is a penalty for leading people astray. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? So his point is this. Run away from false teachers. Understand that false teaching is very, very dangerous. It will keep you from from moving forward in your race. And then we need to understand, based upon all of that, that by all means, you and I should avoid false teaching and teachers. We should avoid false teaching and teachers. It says there in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. You will not buy into the false teaching. And the one who is troubling you, you'll leave them in God's hands to take care of. He even says in verse 12, I wish those who would unsettle you, who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's saying, I, I, I want them to be gone from the church. They're dangerous. Don't give them an ear. Avoid them by all means. Now, that word hindered in verse 7 is interesting when he says, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That, that word in the original Greek language means to impede or cut off. And it's in the context of running a race. I was reminded of an illustration about a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, if there is a must-read book, it's a book called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand about this man named Louis Zamperini. He was a remarkable uh, gentleman. He was a world-class Olympic athlete in track and field. He um, served in World War II. He became a POW. Uh, just a fascinating life. And if you read the book, read to the very end. Uh, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Powerful book about resilience. Well, that book tells the story of Louis Zamperini running a race in the 1938 NCAA championships. Zamperini was the favorite to win. So the other track coaches told their runners to sharpen their spikes. And they began to plot to keep Louis Zamperini from winning the race. And in the middle of the race, just as Zamperini was about to surge forward and, 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 and win that race, some runners came and boxed him in. They, they had runners in front and beside him, and he tried to break through the runners. They wouldn't let him through. One, one runner stepped over a lane and stomped his foot with that sharpened spike, and it went through his shoe into his toe. The runner in front of him began to kick his legs back, and those, those spikes bloodied up his shins. Another runner elbowed him in the chest, and he hit him so hard, he fractured one of Zamperini's ribs. They were doing everything they could to keep Zamperini from winning the race. And that is a picture of false teaching. False teachers will box you in and they will slash you and they will assault you with lies to keep you from moving forward. They will hinder you from running your race. So have nothing to do. By all means, avoid false teachers. You say, well, what happened in the race? Well, read the book. Read the book and you can hear the rest of the story. But, but if you're going to run your race well, run away from false teachers. Number two, 
you're going to run your race well, run to the cross. Run to the cross. Look what the Bible says there in verse 11. He says, but if I, brothers, Paul writing, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, here's what Paul's saying. These false teachers were saying something like this. Hey, this message is okay, that you need to be circumcised to be right with God. If Paul were here, he would tell you the same thing. He would preach circumcision too. And Paul's right and say, no, I would not preach that you need to be circumcised to be saved. That's antithetical to the message that you're, that you're justified by faith alone. And Paul makes the logical point. If I were preaching circumcision and adherence to the law saves you, I wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews. I would be celebrated by the Jews. But the fact that I'm still preaching the cross and Jesus alone saves is the reason that I am being persecuted and harmed. If I were preaching circumcision, I would be popular. But I'm still preaching the cross, the offense of the cross, and that's why I am being persecuted. Now, isn't that phrase interesting, the offense of the cross? Why in the world would the cross be offensive? Well, you need to understand that the cross is a stumbling block to many. People that you work with, people in your family, people in your community, they are offended at the thought of the cross. Why? Well, first of all, the cross proves how evil we are. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners like me. The Bible says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus became sin for us. That means he took all of your sin, all of my sin, all of your iniquity, all of my iniquity, all of your wickedness, all of my wickedness. He took it all on himself on the cross and died bearing the just wrath of God that our sin deserves. The reason he had to die in order to provide salvation is because we are evil. We have sinned against a perfectly holy God and we deserve his punishment. You've sung the song many times, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. There's an old hymn called At the Cross. The first line says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Some of the more modern uh, renditions of that song, some of the more recent uh, hymn books, they take out worm and put in sinner because that's more palatable for folks. But I want you to understand, in, in view of God's holiness, we are worms. I have no problem singing that. He saved a worm like me. And the cross is the declaration that you're evil because Jesus died for our evil. And people don't like to hear it. People like to think, well, I'm basically okay. I'm good. I'm not perfect. I'm better than that old guy over there, right? No, the cross says Jesus died for our sins. That's why he died, for your sins. There's a song that says, it was my sin that held him there. 
until it was accomplished. So the cross proves how evil we are. Secondly, the cross proves we cannot save ourselves. It says earlier in Galatians at the end of chapter 2 that if righteousness comes by the law, if we can save ourselves by doing something, by our moral effort, our adherence to commandments, then Christ died needlessly. But we know the cross is not needless. We know we need Jesus down on the cross for us to be saved. The, the cross is proof positive that we can't get to, into heaven in and of ourselves. We are ruined sinners separated from God and our sin must be atoned for. And that's what the cross is all about. We can't save ourselves. And third, the cross obliterates pride. It obliterates pride. When you realize these realities, you can't strut around and say, look at how great I am. You're a sinner. Christ had to die in your place. The wrath of God that you deserve was poured out upon Christ, who is your substitute. There's simply no place for this arrogance and pride that comes from people thinking they're better than other folks. The cross declares that we are all ruined. We all need a Savior. Now listen to me. There are people in this community, people that you rub shoulders with every day, that would be offended by those three realities. The cross shows how evil we are. It proves we cannot save ourselves. It obliterates pride. There are many that think, well, you know what? I can pick myself up by my bootstraps and I can improve my life. I mean, go to uh, Books A Million or Barnes and Nobles or click on the self-help section in, in, in Amazon and you'll see book after book after book after book that tells you how you can improve yourself and make yourself better. And human pride says, I don't need God. I don't need the cross. I don't need all of that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I can make myself better. They're offended by the cross. In fact, there are folks in this community that think you are crazy for showing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and singing about the cross and preaching about the cross, letting some crazy guy yell at you. They say, you don't need all that. You don't need that organized religion. Just be a good person. and That'll get the job done. The cross says no. There's only one way to be saved, and his name is Jesus. So here's the deal. The cross is a stumbling block to many, but the cross is beautiful to the redeemed. It's beautiful to the redeemed. I appreciate this morning the songs about the cross and the empty tomb, and you were singing them with gusto as well you ought to be because the reality that Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, chose to take our place and die for our sins is beautiful, is it not? It's our only hope. It's beautiful to the redeemed. Fast forward to chapter 6 of Galatians. and Look what Paul says about the cross in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have nothing to brag about. I'm a sheep that's gone astray. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about the cross. Because the cross is where I found life and hope and joy and peace and fulfillment and purpose and salvation. He's boasting in the cross, not in himself. And that should be our posture. 
We bring nothing to the table, but we are so grateful for the cross. John Piper says it like this, The cross makes people either ecstatically happy because their sins are forgiven or vehemently angry because every ground for boasting is removed. The preaching of the cross will provoke those responses. Some will amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Some will say, I don't need all of that stuff, preacher. You just keep that to yourself. And they will be offended by the cross. This is summed up well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when it says, The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I think I've used this illustration before, but years ago, we were down in Florida, and we went out on the Gulf to do some fishing, and our plan was to catch some small fish, some shiners and and then to use those fish as bait to catch bigger fish and so we were out on the boat and we were catching these little shiners and we would throw them in the live well to use them later and we didn't catch very many and it was time to go in and so we never ended up doing a lot of fishing but we went back into uh, the dock and we're getting things out of the boat and I noticed in the live well there are these shiners are still alive swimming around and I, I was feeling I was feeling, you know, generous, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to let these fish die in this live well. I'm going to pick them up and throw them in the canal so they can keep swimming around and, you know, doing whatever fish do. And, and so, so, uh, so I opened the live well and uh, stuck my hand in there, and guess what? Those fish didn't want to be saved. They didn't just swim to my hand and say, by all means, lift me up and put me in the canal. They swam away from my hand. It took me a while in maneuvering to actually catch the fish and, and, and get them and throw them into the canal and save their life. From their perspective, some guy reaching his hand in the live well was foolish. That didn't look like salvation to them. That's how a lot of people view the cross. That's foolishness. Some crucified Jew in the first century Dying a cruel death on a Roman cross has any bearing on my life. That's foolishness, many people would say. But if you've met Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've embraced the cross, you know the cross is beautiful, right? And that's his point. Don't get... Don't get led astray by these false teachers. Keep moving forward by embracing the cross. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what Christ has done. And remember your need for a Savior. And if you'll embrace the cross, you'll stay on the right track. So how do we move forward in our Christian life? Run away from false teachers. Run to the cross. But number three, we're we're called to run in love. We're called to run in love. Love. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, everyone say love. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What's that word? Love. And he quotes the Old Testament, which he repeats in another place when he mentions the great commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But... If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here's Paul's point. As you run your race, make sure that you're running in love. 
for others. And that's how you run your race well. Now he mentions there freedom in verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Here's what you need to understand. Biblical freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want. Verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he understands there could be some misapplication with his message. He understands people could hear Paul write, you're justified by faith alone in Jesus. Jesus has done it all. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what Christ has done, trusting him on your behalf. And he anticipates some people saying, well, if Jesus has done it all, it's all done. It doesn't really matter how I live. I'm free now. I can do whatever I want to do, right? I can go live it up. If I'm secure, which is a misunderstanding and misapplication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says here, listen, freedom is, is, is not an opportunity for you to indulge the flesh. Just because your sins are forgiven, just because the work has been done, this is not license for you to just go your own direction in life and just do your own thing because you think there are no consequences for indulging your flesh. It's not freedom to do whatever you want. Biblical freedom, listen to this, is freedom to pursue God, reject sin, and love others. And how does that work? Here's how it works. When you are saved, you are, when your race begins, you are set free from the power of sin by the power of the indwelling spirit. So now you have the capacity to serve God and others. To love God and others. Not to, not to gain salvation, but because you have salvation. Because, listen to me. Because you have embraced the love of God, you can now extend the love of God. You have freedom to do that. That's what he means here. You see, we're called as Christians to love others. Listen, and I want you to come in, leaning close on this one. Not to gain points with God because... Our works don't gain points with God. We're only saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Amen? So we love others not to gain points with God and feel better about ourselves. We, we love others as a reflection of the love we've received through Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. There are people in our world that do some really good things. They help other people. And oftentimes those really good things can be driven by wrong motives. I'm doing these things so that I can gain points and be more moral. And I'm doing these things so that I'll feel better about myself. I can assuage my conscience by doing good deeds. That, that's not the biblical idea of love. We don't love to gain points with God. We, 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 are, we are righteous in Christ. We are saved by Jesus. We, we are secure in our position. Amen? We're not trying to gain points with God. And we're not loving to feel better about ourselves. Now we're free to love for the good of others. Isn't that extraordinary? We can lay aside selfish motivation and, and we can say, I've embraced, I've embraced the cross, I've embraced the love of God, and now I can be an instrument in God's hands to extend it to others. I'm free to love folks. There's a good illustration of this in Acts chapter 16. One of my favorite stories and in that chapter, Paul and Silas go into Philippi. They're preaching the gospel. They're arrested and thrown into prison. And the Bible says in the midnight hour, they're in stocks, they're in chains. In the midnight hour, Paul and Silas, his 
missionary companion are singing songs of praise. They're singing hymns. Now, could you do that? I mean, it takes real maturity to find yourself in the depths of despair, still able to sing praises. Amen? There they were. No end in sight. They're in jail. Uncertainty about what would happen. Their life was being threatened. And yet they're singing praises to God. I hope I can be there where they were in terms of that kind of maturity. But the Bible says as they sang, a great earthquake shook the jail. And their chains fell off. And the doors were flung open. And Paul and Silas were able to escape and go to their freedom. Get out of Philippi. Get away from persecutors. Get out of harm's way. They were free to go. So did Paul and Silas do that? Did they leave the jail? No. You see, the Philippian jailer understood that people's chains had fallen off and people were going to flee and escape and in the Roman Empire, if you were a prison guard and people escaped on your watch, the penalty was certain death. Flipping jailer is sure that everyone's gone. The doors have been flung go open wide. So he's about to kill himself. And right before he does, he hears a voice. The Apostle Paul. And Paul says, wait a minute. Listen. We're still here. Don't kill yourself. Sure, they could have gone to freedom. Why did they stay? Listen, they cared more about the Philippian jailer than they did their own freedom. He was the priority. They wanted to love him. And so they shared the gospel with him. The Philippian jailer got saved. He took them to his house. They preached the gospel to his household. His household got saved. They were baptized. Glorious. And guess what happened next? Paul and Silas went back to jail before daybreak so that the Philippian jailer would not be killed. They could have fled. They could have gotten out of Philippi. They could have run to safety and no one would have blamed them. But They cared more about the Philippian jailer's soul than they cared about their own freedom. You see, biblical freedom is not freedom just to just... Do what you want, unconcerned about other folks. Biblical freedom is freedom by the power of the Spirit to really love folks. You've, you've experienced the love of God at the cross, and now you can extend it. You can, you can love other people and make a difference in their life. Now, here's an illustration of how that may play out. There's an ongoing discussion in churches, it's always there, about Christians and alcohol. It's always there. People talk about it all the time. I get asked that question quite a bit. And usually when I hear people that are proponents of Christians drinking, it goes something like this. Uh, hey, I'm free in Christ, and if I want to drink socially or have some alcohol, then I'm, I'm, I'm free to do that. To which I would say... What if you're in the room with someone that comes from a long line of alcoholism and a drink for them is a step over the cliff? 
a step towards their doom. And your drinking is just encouragement for them to say, okay, we must not be that bad. Heaven forbid that someone should become an alcoholic when they began drinking because they saw Pastor Wade drinking and thought it was okay. Can I go drink something and still be saved? Yes. I'm saved by Jesus, not by my performance. But what's more important? Me just enjoying my freedom, indulging my flesh, or me caring about other folks? See how that works? And so... We're called to run the race and run in love. Now look at the alternative. Look at the last verse in this section. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Which would you rather have? A church family where we are loving each other fiercely, laying down ourselves and our lives so that we can love others and speak into other people's lives and help and encourage? Or would you rather bite each other and devour one another. That's miserable, right? I believe Paul's casting a vision here. Live in love. Love one another. Run in love. And so, if you want to run your race well, you need to make sure that you run away from false teachers. You need to run to the cross and just... Embrace the cross. And you need to run in love. And if you will do those three things, you will move forward. You'll not be hindered from moving forward in your Christian journey. So, here's the point. You and I are called to evaluate our Christian life. To see, in light of this text, if we are really moving forward in our race. Would you do that this morning? Would you, would you just for a few moments in your, in your heart and mind, would you evaluate your Christian journey, your Christian race, and say, am I really moving forward? Am I really running my race well? That's a, an important question to ask. Because remember, just like a race, the Christian life has a beginning. And just like a race, the Christian life has an ending where we transition from this life to the next. When that time comes, we want to hear the Master say, Well done.